Join me tonight, if you would, in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 15. And I think, if I'm correct, Brother Duane, is there about a hundred of these lessons now? About a hundred lessons that we've had in the book of Revelation. Brother uh, Wayne Boyd has been putting them on the uh, internet, and uh, he's putting uh, some of Brother Gene's on the internet, and he put the ones that Lance preached while he was here on the internet, and he says been downloads on all of those around the world, downloads on all of those. And there was someone came to his service the other day and said that they'd found him in Central Point as a result of the internet, said he'd been living in the area for five years, staying home, reading his Bible and watching some videos because he couldn't find any place to go. And he ran into him and went to services. I'll be here next Sunday. So uh, Brother Wayne is just really encouraged over that use of the internet. And uh, you pray for him down there. All right, Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15. And I want to read these eight verses and then spend a little time on the first couple of verses here that uh, share with us as so much of the book of Revelation does. In fact, I think we could honestly say this about all the Bible, that the uh, uh, like this, like other chapters in the book of, uh, of Revelation, uh, they fortify the church's assurance of victory. That's what we find here in the book of Revelation. They fortify the church's uh, assurance of victory. We're promised victory. It's good to be assured of it. It's good to constantly be told that. It's good to be constantly reminded that we have victory in Christ. Every day as we read through the scriptures, we are constantly refreshed that we have victory in Christ. And we, a weak and needy people, certainly need that kind of encouragement on a daily basis. That Christ is as effectual and as valuable and as important in our life today as he ever will be. And that he constantly shares with us the promise of his victory. Now, uh, in this chapter, it begins... And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee. For thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure white linen, 
and having their breasts girded with the golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Let's look a little bit at the first two verses of this chapter tonight. First of all, we notice here that the uh, statement is made, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. That's a message that John was used to record. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. And the church is so overwhelmed with the message of distinguishing grace. By that I mean that the church is informed of their value constantly and a specialness about the church. They are shared with this fact of distinguishing grace. Now, Judas, not Iscariot, there's a verse we want to read in the book of John. Judas, and it's very clear, not Iscariot, made a question, asked a question. Turn with me, if you would, over to the book of John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Here a question is asked. This is the kind of distinguishing grace that we find in the book of Revelation, that we find in the book of John, that we find in the book of Luke and Matthew, that the church has a particular place in the love of God, has a particular place in the redemptive work of God. In fact, all redemptive work of God is toward the church and no one else. All of the ministry of Christ is toward the church and no one else. It is distinguishing grace. Grace and grace alone is given to the church. Now, in John chapter 14, in verse 22, Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot. Judas couldn't, that Judas couldn't come up with this question. It wouldn't have gone through his mind. But this Judas, being a disciple of the Lord Jesus, asked this question. How is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us? Now, that's going to take a long time to answer. How is it that thou will manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Distinguishing grace. Judas recognized that there was something special about the grace of God, something special about the love of God, something special about the redemptive work of God something special, though he had done nothing to deserve it, and though he couldn't work for it, and though it was not a reward, it was something that God, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would instruct a group of people about grace and not instruct the world. Judas again says, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? And as we go through the book of Revelation, 
we're going to, the church is going to keep this thing in mind, this item in mind, this statement in mind, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's going to prevent me from turning this into a free-for-all of end-time study. I am convinced that the last two or three weeks, pulpits in this land have been filled with earthquakes in diverse places. We've had a quite a number in the last month or so, starting with Haiti and Chile and Chile and Pakistan and several other places. But how is it, Lord, that you'll show us your grace and not show the world? Now, that's distinguishing grace. And the people that understand that realize they didn't do anything to deserve this revelation. They're not working there trying to provide it by works. They're not trying to provide it by good standing with God, their own righteousness, keeping the law. They realize that this is given to sinners and held back from the whole those who are not sick, those who are righteous, this is held back. But sinners get to see that Jesus Christ has distinguishing grace. It is given to a people. So as we read here uh, in the book of Revelation chapter 15, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. And there's going to be a few that see this benefit. They are going to see what this is and the rest will pass by. The rest will look at it as Oh my goodness, I can't wait to get and tell God what I discovered in his word today. Great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass. Now when I read that, I'm reminded of a great sea in the Old Testament. That sea of brass that was there at the temple. It was not at the tabernacle because it was too heavy to carry, but it was a huge brazen sea. And it sat on the back of 12 brazen oxen. And it was very thick. In fact, when you read about it, it says that there was so much brass in it that Solomon quit measuring it. And when it was hauled off, it says... The brass was so much that they didn't even count it. It was immense brass. And it was huge. Turn with with me, if you would, over to 1 Chronicles chapter 4. Let's just look at a couple verses there with regard to this great sea. Now, there's one thing about the sea that is above everything else. It is a picture left for us of being washed in the blood of the Lamb and not ever being able to see your sin. It's washed away. It's taken off. There's so many gallons of water in here. If you wash your body in it, you will not even be able to tell that you did. There's so much. Now, if you do it in a cup, it's going to be a whole lot different than doing it in this sea of water. This great sea of water is immense and has uh, many many gallons of water and it is for a purpose to show the people that the fountain of blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely sufficient to wash us from all our sin and never to be seen again 
The high priest goes over there and washes his hand in this basin of water. My goodness, he didn't even make a dent on it. You can't even see the dust that he washed off. It's hidden from him. The water has taken it. There's so much water you can't see what you washed off your hands. And that's the impression that this great sea was to make unto the children of Israel. It's so immense. And the fountain of the blood of the Lamb is so immense that it will take care of all the sins of all his people and never to be brought up against him, those people again. Second, excuse me, First Chronicles chapter 4. First Chronicles in chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 4 and verse 2 of First Chronicles. Second Chronicles. Man, that makes a big difference. Second. Second Chronicles, chapter 4 and verse 2. Second Chronicles, chapter 4 and verse 2. And he made a molten sea of 10 cubits from brim to brim. That's about 30 feet. Huge. Or 18 feet. From brim to brim, round and compass, five cubits in height thereof, and a line of 30 cubits did compass it round about. And it's set on the similitude of oxen, and uh, it's just immense. The, the gallons of water that would take to fill this is a lot. And the whole picture here is, this is a picture of the sufficiency of, of the cleansing power of the blood. This is so immense that it will take care of all sin, all dirt. Now, turn with me just a little further to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13, and we read about this, this fountain. Uh, one of the old hymn writers wrote a hymn about this. There is a fountain filled with blood. Zechariah chapter 13. We read about this as it's mentioned here in the Old Testament, a fountain. And this fountain is so immense, like that sea in relationship. Now, this fountain is spiritual. Those people could go out and see that brazen sea. But everyone that walked up to it, I can't help but think this, man, this is big. This is big. This is bigger than any wash pot we have ever been around. This is bigger than any basin we've seen. And it was intended to be that way. I used to take kids down to the courthouse. I say, look at the doors of this place. And look at the ceilings of this place. This is huge. It is to impress on you something. That this is a big place in the sense of there's where law is given. The respect for it. Well, they come down to the, and see that brazen sea. This is immense. This is huge. And here, that little guy there washing his hands in that basin. Well, my goodness, you could drink after it. It is so huge that it would take care of that. Now, notice here in Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, In that day... There shall be a fountain open to the house of David. 
and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanliness. A fountain opened. Now, this is a spiritual statement about the fulfillment and completion and the wholeness of this fountain that God washes us in the blood of Christ. It is so huge that it takes care of all our sin. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. There's no leftovers. There's nothing that's not covered. There's no Achilles heel. He plunges his people completely and totally here to wash them from our wash us from our sin in the blood of Christ. Spiritually speaking, he does that. He did it by paying for all our sin on the cross. And this statement is just brought up. Now over here in the book of Revelation, we have a group of people standing out on this great sea of glass mingled with fire. Now that's an important thing. Let's go back over there. These people are standing on this. They're standing on this great sea of glass mingled with fire. In Revelation chapter 15, I saw, as it were, a great sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten, now notice who's getting to stand on this great sea. We're not talking about water, and we're not talking about a mirror. We're talking about a picture. We're talking about what people in the church stand on, what they depend on, what they rely on what is necessary for them to go from one day to the next day. They're standing on the complete and total righteousness of Christ. That's what they're standing on. And it is so complete that it takes care of all our needs. It says there, who's standing there? Them that have gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over his number of his name. They stand on the sea of glass. Now, what does that mean, all those things, that list of things? Well, it just means complete victory. There's nothing left to be victorious over. There's nothing left that we have to get involved with. It is all so completely and totally victorious. We stand, and it is imperative that we do this. We stand on the blood and righteousness of Christ. It is our mirror. It is a mingle of fire. Judgment was poured out there, and we're standing right there where judgment fell. We're standing in the blood and righteousness of Christ. And in that, we have every victory. We have victory over the beast. All, of the, all that religion we have ever had, we have victory over it. And we have victory, it says, over, uh, over his image and over his mark. This is total victory that God gives his people. And it's symbolized here in heaven by standing on this great sea. This, as in the Old Testament, a great sea, they didn't stand on it. They walked up to it and says, immense, huge, large, grandiose. And it takes care of the dirt of the priest's hands. That, that fountain that Zechariah wrote about, immense and huge. We just finished in verse 20 of the previous chapter how much sin there is. And the next thing we come to is a place where it is taken care of. Here it is bridle deep and 200 miles in every direction. And that immense sin of people taken care of 
by the immensity of the blood of Christ, the completeness of his redemptive work is taken care of, and we get to stand there on this completed work of Christ. I saw it was as a, a sea of glass mingled with fire. By what is done on it seems to indicate much more than its water, but the wonderful redemptive work of God and the Godhead. What? The Father's free election of sinners. We stand on that. Over in the book of, of uh, Psalms, that Psalm 9 we've been in, woe unto the nation who does forget God. Woe to the people who forget God's sovereignty. That's what that means. People can forget God, but the people, they hang on to God, but forget who he is. Forget his sovereignty. Woe unto that people. We're right in the middle of that. We've had a hundred years of free will preaching, and we're reaping it right now. We're reaping it all around us, and we're reaping it in religion. A hundred or a hundred and fifty years of that nonsense. And after a while, people are believing that they are free will to do anything they want to. I went to the principal one time. I says, what's wrong with these kids? They're acting like animals. Well, don't teach them that up in the science room then. Teach them that they're animals, and then when they act like it, we don't like it. Teach them that there's free will, and when they express it, we don't like it. We want to put them in jail. My goodness. God's wonderful grace, his sovereignty, his holiness, all of these things were on the tips and tongues of God's preachers and God's congregation, and then they begin to forget it. Churches filled with people who didn't know what it was. You're just amazed when you read the history of the Metropolitan Tabernacle and find out how quickly, how quickly it left. I'm amazed at how quickly a church in Ashland, after 50 years of hearing the gospel, would depart from it. Just how quickly. But the church depends totally and completely on the blood and righteousness of Christ. That's what we stand on. Everywhere else is, is uh, quicksand. You'll, it, it, you'll fail and falter. It's shamrock. It's not the rock. This is the rock. The Father's free election of his sinners. The Son's free blood brought redemption. That's what we stand on. And the Holy Spirit's quickening work in redemption we attribute every bit of God's salvation to God. And we are just like Judas, not Iscariot. How can this be? That you would show sinners grace and hide it from the world. How can this be? Why? Only known to God. Why? The sea is stood on. The church stands on the truth of the redemption in, that's in Christ Jesus. We stand in that victory that he won for us. They'd gotten the victory over everything. It is complete victory. Now, let's look for just a moment at this word found in this verse 2, this word victory. They had gotten the victory over the beast. 
Let's look at that word. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 11 and verse 22? It's the first time in the New Testament, first time in the Greek Bible that this word was used. And it's found in Luke chapter 11. I think by the time we're through looking at what this word means, as it's found in other verses of Scripture, we'll have to conclude, this is Christ's victory. It's not mine. It's given to me, but I didn't do anything to claim it. I didn't do anything to have it. I didn't do anything. It's not my victory. I didn't fight for it. He did. I stand in his victory and his victory alone. In the book of Luke chapter 11 and verse 22, 11 and verse 22, the scriptures share with us there. Chapter 11 and verse 22, but when a stronger then he shall come. Let's back up there. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger, then he shall come upon him and overcome him. Now that's the same word we find over here for victory, overcome him. My goodness, we are strong in ourself. We are reliant upon ourself. We're telling God, my, my righteousness is enough now you can add just a little bit but i am in pretty good shape and then the stronger man comes and what does it say there luke eleven twenty two, the stronger man comes then he shall come upon him and overcome him now what he says is i'm going to win the victory here your righteousness will not and is not your, your works cannot, and they won't. He taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. He taketh all the armor wherein he trusteth. What is natural man trust in? What is man trust in before God comes along and overcometh them? Our works, our religion, our righteousness, our law, our legalism, there's just so much. And the stronger one comes and wins the victory and strips him, us, of all our armor that we trusted in. Well, it's no wonder that we're instructed over there in the book of Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God, which he puts on us, just like he, someone might say, oh, Adam clothed himself. Well, go over there. He was clothed. We may say, we put on the armor. No, 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 no. He puts on the armor. He is the armor, and he puts it on us. So he overcame, and that's victory. And that's the same word we find over here, having the victory. Turn with me just a little further in John chapter 16. John chapter 16 and verse 33, the same word is mentioned there, and the Lord Jesus uses it again here in this passage. Only he uses it about himself. It would have been a sad day for the church to find out that Jesus Christ could not win the victory over this world. Went through and did all he did, and then find out he couldn't do it. John chapter 16. We are dependent upon him overcoming. Winning the victory is what it means. He wins the victory. He wins every victory. 
he has lost none. He that has begun a good work will perform it to the end. He that goes into battle will be victorious in that battle. It doesn't matter whether we're nine feet tall or two and a half feet tall, he will win the victory. And it doesn't matter whether we have all these things that we've accumulated, spiritually speaking, our own self-righteousness, or we're just getting started. He has to win the victory. John chapter 16, verse 33, the scriptures share this, These things have I spoken, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome. I've won the victory over the world. I have overcome the world. Now, once again, the Lord is telling us it is his overcoming. It is his victory, just like we found over there. The strong man comes in and takes care of the issue, binds the weaker, <laughs> strips him of all his armor that he depends on. Turn with me just a little further in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we read this again. These that stand on this sea of glass are victorious. These that depend upon the righteousness, the blood and righteousness of Christ are victorious. Why? Because he has given them the victory. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 Verse 13, 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, I write unto you fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children, because ye have known the father. I have because the young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. How did that happen? How is that victory? That victory is the victory that Christ won over the wicked one, won over sin, won over death, won over hell, won over all our enemies and all his enemies. This is how we overcome. This is how we overcome the evil one, the wicked one. This is how we overcome ourselves is the victory that's in Christ Jesus. He is the victor. And we enjoy that victory that he gave us. 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. We read this with regard to Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Blessed is he that overcometh. They shall do this and that and that. And he that hath near, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Who are those? Religion tells us, there's your job. From the moment you're saved to the moment you die, this is your job. You've got to strive to overcome. Now let's listen to this. Listen with me, if you would. First John chapter 5 and verse 5. Who is he that overcometh the world? Good question. But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Now it's not our striving that we overcome. It's Christ that has overcome for us. We will never overcome on our own. They overcame the beast by the blood of the lamb. No other way. This overcoming fits right into Revelation chapters 2 and 3 about every church. Their question came up or the statement is made. 
He that overcometh shall sit with me in my kingdom, shall be in the temple, shall. Who are they? Everyone that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Peter summed it up this way. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Great confession of faith. But even the Lord answered him this. Flesh and blood didn't give that to you. Flesh and blood didn't give you the victory, and flesh and blood didn't cause you or allow you to say that about God. Flesh and blood did not reveal this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. That's how he knew that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And that's how these were victorious to stand on this great sea of glass mingled with fire, standing on the blood and righteousness of Christ, standing on his redemptive work, saying, not my will but thine be done, standing and saying, not my righteousness but his righteousness, standing and saying, not my works but his works, standing and saying, not my relationship but his relationship. Boy, here's one area, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Knowing Christ makes all the difference. It's not what we know, it's who we know. And who knows us? One other verse along this line. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21 and verse 7. These that stood in the victory that's in Christ Jesus, this can be said about them. And those who stood there are those who are in the church of the living God. Those who know Christ, those who confess Christ, those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, those God has worked a work in, those who have been raised from the spiritual dead, those who have been brought out of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. These, Revelation chapter 21, verse 6 and 7, and he said unto me, it is done. I'm Alpha and Omega. <laughs> we can say it's finished. That's what he said from the cross. That's what he will always say. That's what he says here. That's what he says in the days of John. He's still saying it. It's finished. It's done. I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son and this is a statement right out of the everlasting covenant. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Right out of the everlasting covenant. And so those who stand, as we go back here to the book of Revelation chapter 15, those who stand on this glass mingled with fire, representation of that we see over in the Old Testament. They could walk up to it, they could touch it, they could see it. Great sea, filled with water. Priest come down, wash his hands. There wasn't enough dirt on his hands, even if they were really muddy, to make that water look like it was dirty. That was the purpose of it. It is so much that even with what you put in it, it you can still drink it. It's a picture of the fountain 
of blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the real cleansing element, the real cleansing agent for sin. And here again, here it is, this great sea mingled of glass mingled with fire. The most invaluable, most important thing that we can see about that is they stood on it. They, what does it say there? They'd gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. That means there was complete victory given to them. They weren't haunted by his picture. They weren't haunted by his image. They weren't haunted by 666. They can just say, that's just another number. I know what I am. I am of weak frame. I am a sinner in my flesh. I am a sinner in my spirit, and I'm a sinner in my mind. 666. But God's given me the victory over that, and he'll not hold that against me. I have redemption in him. And then it says there, over... Uh, over the number of his name, his name is not even valuable anymore. Well, it was important. Now it's invaluable. They stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And when we went through this before, there is one note they know. It's the note of the sovereign grace gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ping! It is so clear that even the psalmist said, Blessed is he that hath... Uh, there we go. First thing that goes announced. <laughs> knows the blessed sound. Blessed sound. Blessed sound of the gospel. They have one, they have their harps, and there's one tune on it, one note, and that's all they because that's all their salvation and that is all their hope. Now from here on, we have uh, them singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. You know what? They're the same song and they have the same tune. When Moses, his song over there on the Red Sea, God is sovereign, and he took care of all those guys. God is sovereign. That's what he sang. God is sovereign. He did with them as it pleased him, and he did with us as he pleased him. And we sing God is sovereign. He ruleth over all. We'll look at that song. And also the song of the Lamb. I am sovereign <laughs> and over all. <laughs> all, right. all right. We'll look at that next time, Lord willing.